Hello and welcome to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. This episode is going to be a little more sciencey. We brought together two grantees who are working in, in kind of different fields, but they each had recent publications that came out. And so we brought them together so they could kind of describe their work to each other. We thought this would be a fun way to elevate the science. And you know, for there's so much happening all the time in cancer research. If your research is into epigenetics, maybe you don't know about the latest and greatest thing in the tumor microenvironment, you know, for example. So our goal with this was really to kind of elevate the science of two of our grantees who had some really exciting new breast cancer research come out and also get them to kind of um, um, share their work with somebody outside their field. So our two guests today are ACS grantees, Dr. Sonia Deassis and Dr. Matthew Sikora. So Dr. Deassis is at Georgetown University, where she is an assistant professor of oncology. And Dr. Matt Sikora is at the University of Colorado Denver Anschutz Medical Campus. He's an assistant professor of pathology. Like I said, this one's a little more sciencey. And at the end of the podcast, maybe last three, five minutes, uh, we kind of took a bit of a turn, asked them to really explain, you know, why did they get into the area of study that they're focused on and how it how would they explain to a cancer patient or survivor, or caregiver, like why their area of research is really exciting? Um, but we started off by asking Dr. Deassis to talk about her new publication, um, which has to do with epigenetic predisposition. So, um, Joe, my lab is interested in epigenetic inheritance, and I know that not that many people have heard about epigenetic inheritance, so I think I should explain that first. Epigenetic inheritance is this concept that in addition to genetic material or DNA, our parents also pass to us a molecular memory of their environmental exposures, and that can affect our risk or predisposition to disease, including cancer. My lab, um, showed a few years ago that paternal obesity is associated with cancer development, increased cancer development in offspring. And uh, in the case of the daughters specifically, that's in, in, uh, associated with an increased risk of breast cancer development. Bear in mind that th these are studies in animal models, uh, but there's also some evidence in humans that that could be the case. In this particular study that you mentioned uh, today, uh, we, uh, we're trying to respond to some questions that arose in that first publication showing the association between paternal obesity and breast cancer. Uh, in that paper, in addition to the increase in breast cancer risk, we saw that the daughters of obese fathers, uh, they, uh, they had uh, altered development of their normal mammary tissue, but they also had uh, systemic metabolic alterations. They had insulin resistance. So in this paper that we just published, we were interesting, uh, interested in answering two questions. The first one was whether um, the systemic alterations in daughters of obese fathers or the changes that were specific to their mammary tissue were more important in driving their cancer predisposition. So, and the way we addressed that question was by doing, um, math might be, um, familiar with that technique, we did a mammary gland transplantation. Uh, we also did mammary tumor transplantation. So what we did, we uh, this again using an animal model, we took 
uh, mammary glands of daughters of obese fathers and transplanted them into a control group of animals that were healthy and did not have much of a predisposition to cancer. Uh, we also did that with their mammary tumors. And then we did the reverse. We took the mammary tissues of these control animals and transplanted them into the daughters of obese fathers and also their mammary tumors. And then we looked to see how they were going to grow. Uh, and based on our studies, uh, on our findings, uh, we reported that um, the systemic effects of the daughters of obese father might play a more dominant role because the normal mammary tissues and tumors that were uh, collected from the control animals and transplanted into them grew much faster than those that, uh, that we, we transplanted into control animals. Um, the second question that we had for these papers was whether this cancer predisposition that we saw in daughters of obese fathers could be transmitted to a second generation, that, that is the granddaughters. And um, we, what we did in that case, again, this is a mouse model, we um, bred uh, the sons and daughters of fathers uh, that were obese, and then we looked at the granddaughters' uh, development of cancer, and we showed that the cancer development was faster in granddaughters of obese fathers compared to uh, those uh, grandchildren that were, had not been, did not have that ancestor exposure. So that's in a nutshell what we showed uh, in this recent paper. So Matt, what what kind of jumped out to you when you when you read actually? Work? Yeah, Sonia, figure two was uh, figure two a was what really it slapped me in the face. It was it was fascinating. And it was, was when you took the control healthy mammary glands and, and you had one where you put into the, the daughters of the control diet fathers versus the obese fathers. Mm -hmm. uh, and the fact that taking a normal healthy mammary gland that essentially comes from a healthy non-obese context and you put that into the, the context of the formerly obese um, uh, stroma and in local context, and it just blows up the mammary gland and it starts expanding. And uh, it it really, it, it screamed to me, and you showed a little bit of data in figure one that there's different um, glucose levels, insulin tolerance, and those those daughters of the, of the obese males. Mm -hmm. But uh, the idea of epigenetic programming, like, do, do you think that you're now even impacting, like, are you changing the environment? Is, is the local environment from the formerly obese <laughs> daughter is that impacting now the, the context of the mammary gland of the from the control mouse? Basically, or is it is it purely because you're changing metabolic con, you know metabolic content and context? Or you know my, one of the questions I had is that if you took that 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 control mammary gland in the the you know the daughter of the obese mice and got it pregnant, what happens to the mammary gland? Does it like does it now respond to hormones in a different way? Does it just go completely bonkers? Is it more susceptible to to mergenesis? Like does its stem cell population not not differentiate the same way anymore? I mean it just yeah that that figure two a really smacked me in the face and it just got me going. <laughs> right, right. Now those those are all excellent questions. And why we don't have an answer, we did not do those stu studies in those in this particular Paper, I think the answer is yes. I think there is a programming that occurs uh, in, 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 the con in, in the major context of having that ancestral obesity uh, inheritance, right? This epigenetic inheritance. And in fact, we actually did publish, a, I think we answered that in a different paper that we published, I think it was 2018, uh, where we show actually that daughters of fathers that were malnourished, their tumors, they did, they did have a metabolic reprogramming. Uh, for example, the AMPK and TOR pathway 
uh, was uh, the mTOR was increased in those uh, in the tumors of those uh, animals, and they also have this change in how they respond uh, to amino acids and how they utilize amino acids, including an increasing utilization of glutamine, which is uh, an amino acid that's preferred by cancer cells. So absolutely, I think that is the case. Of course, we are only starting these studies. There's a lot more that we need to know about this, but I think that 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 should be the case. Have you have you done, done things like got those mice pregnant? I mean, is it is it just the, that local metabolic context, we, or are they now susceptible to any cytokine, mitogen, etc.? So we have not made them pregnant, and I I actually haven't thought of that question. I think that's why it's so great to talk to other scientists that are not on the field and have maybe a different perspective. But that that's an excellent question. Would they be uh, would pregnancy make because we know pr pregnancy is protective for breast cancer, right? So would in this context, would pregnancy still be protective or would cause uh, changes that would make them even more prone to developing cancer? Right. I mean, it got me thinking a part about that because there's a there's an active group here in Colorado that, that studies pregnancy associated breast cancer mm -hmm. because they tend to be more aggressive. You know, right. this just this to me almost screamed like a context that would just be right for that phenotype. Um, yeah, that's what I, that's it really kind of I said it smacked me in the face. Um, the other thing, I mean, so you mentioned the, the, the impact of the, the sperm tRNAs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I and, forgot to mention that in my introduction. Yeah, I mean, yes. it's a fascinating potential uh, driver, but do you think it's actually the tRNA levels that are different that are causing the phenotype, or are those indicative of a different epigenetic context in the sperm? Like, is it is it the chicken or the egg there? So I, I think they, 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 well, maybe I should back up a little bit uh, and just explain that the reason why we're looking at tRNA fragments in the sperm of the, of the fathers and their sons, uh, we know that uh, sperm is transcriptionally inactive. So as you can see, this is a very, um, I guess, multidisciplinary field. <laughs> and I have to know a little bit from uh, reproductive biology or the eighth one college. But in the case of the tRNAs, the reason why we're looking at them is because sperm is transcriptionally inactive. But we know that certain things change uh, when you expose animals to a particular uh, environmental exposure, in this case, obesity. Uh, and we think these non-coding RNAs, there's a lot of evidence by my lab and others that show that these non-coding RNAs seem to be the culprits that is transferring information from one generation to another. So that's what we're, we're looking and we have we we have some data that are it's not included in this paper showing that if we inject non-coding these non-coding RNAs in the paternal sperm into normal embryos, we can replicate this effect. So we oh so we can completely replicate the effect. Uh, this is unpublished uh, data that we have, but we we've done these studies and it, it's it's very exciting. You, you can see the same phenotype uh, in the offspring. Uh, or so we, we inject the embryos and then we put them in surrogate models, let them develop, and then we study their breast cancer development. Uh, and we see very similar phenotypes. So we know that these uh, non-coding RNAs, including tRNA fragments, but also microRNAs play a functional role uh, in transferring this information from one generation to another. That's fascinating. Yeah, so one thing that I would like to make clear is that we think that actually that these non-coding RNAs, they act on a hit and run effect. So they, they once, because they are not there for very long, right? So right. They, they, this is not, 
inheritance in the true uh, in, in, in the way we think of genetics. Yeah. So these non-coding RNAs are delivered to the to to the oocyte during fertilization. They do what they need to do in early development, mm -hmm. and then they set a cascade that will uh, lead this uh, developing embryo into a certain mm -hmm. direction, which would make them more or less prone to developing diseases, including cancer. Fascinating. Yeah. It is fascinating. It just the phrase epigenetic memory kind of gets, it just lights sparks. <laughs> I think it's very cool. So I want to make sure we get into your new paper, Matt. Do you think you could spend a moment kind of talking us talking us through that? So it's yeah. mediator of DNA damage checkpoint one is a novel estrogen receptor co-regulator and invasive lobular carcinoma of the breast. My lab focuses on invasive lobular carcinoma, which is a histological subtype of breast cancer. And, and rather than forming the typical lump that we think of as a breast tumor, you can kind of see in that image in the top left that those little blue spots are the, the, the cancer cells and they're, they are infiltrating the, the normal breast tissue, which is mostly in pink, in this characteristic single file pattern. So they have this really weird growth pattern, um, but my lab focuses on them because they are nearly all estrogen receptor positive as opposed to two thirds of breast cancer overall. And they have a lot of markers of kind of low risk disease, but despite this, they clearly have a very unique relationship with estrogens and more importantly, anti-estrogens, um, including the, clinically, we don't think they respond to anti-estrogens as well as would you'd predict based on their, their other biomarkers. So my lab has been really interested in, in why is that the case? Um, because frankly, almost all our understanding about estrogen receptor comes from uh, ductal carcinoma, which is kind of the default breast cancer subtype. Um, there's been very little study in, in other histological types specifically. Um, so our main hypothesis going in was that since ER seems to have these different functions, that this may be driven by the, the transcriptional partners of estrogen receptor, the so-called co-regulators. Um, so that image in the top right is just a network map of, of the results of, of some mass spec screening to say who is actually working physically with estrogen receptor in ILC cells. And we combine those mass spec studies with an siRNA screen and our favorite hit. And the top hit after all this was this protein MDC1 or mediator of DNA damage checkpoint one. And it was basically, it was a, an unexpected partner of the estrogen receptor, but ultimately found it was required for ER function, both in driving proliferation and in, in regulating target genes. Um, and it, it was required in a couple different cell lines for from 25 to 50% of the estrogen regulated transcriptome requires MDC1. Um, so what we kind of the, the, the relationship we found at the end, though, is that you can imagine now there's this potential crosstalk between MDC1 and ER, but also as the name implies, mediator of DNA damage checkpoint one is canonically a, a major DNA repair cornerstone, but we're not actually clear that this, this function of MDC1 is actually working right in ILC cells. And we're still figuring out the details, but we found in this paper that there's some hints that it's just not working quite right. So clearly um, that and some based on some tumor data, ILC is a unique context for MDC1 function and, and basically what the cells are asking of MDC1. But then the converse of that is we think that MDC1 may, may now be creating a unique context for estrogen receptor to function in ILC. We're trying to figure out still what the co-regulator function is, but thinking about epigenetics as kind of the main output of what co-regulators do. Uh, my favorite hypothesis right now is that MDC1 is acting perhaps sort of like a pioneer factor or a licensing type factor that changes the epigenomic context for where ER can get in the genome and what genes it regulates and how it responds to ligand. Um, so long-term, we're trying to figure out uh, how prevalent is this? Can we target that particular function of MDC1? And then the back half of that, are there then implications for whether or not DNA repair works the same way in this cancer subtype? 
So I'll just mention too that part of the reason I thought that, that Sonia and I were an interesting pairing is again that context idea where she sees a different context for how the mammary glands respond based on the epigenetic memory, on diet, and now we're seeing downstream, you know, a different cellular context for how again cells respond to hormone and how they treat it. Thanks, Matt. So Sonia, you um had a chance to look this over. What what do you think? You got any questions for Matt? I think it's great, and I think Matt is right that we, even though we started thinking that we worked in very different spectrums of breast cancer, maybe there's something that we can bring together, right? So the the, the, the idea of programming and context. Matt, so one thing that I was, when I was reading your paper and, and learning a little bit more about um, lobular adenocarcinoma is how do you think, um, why do you think women develop different subtypes of cancer? It was just something, you know, I know there, there probably there is an answer, but what, what are your thoughts on that? Why do some women develop ductal, the ductal phenotype, some others develop the lobular phenotype? Yeah, that's a fabulous question. So I, so first off, I mean, the fact that they're called ductor versus lobular is a historical artifact. Like they're, they're not actually, it doesn't actually mean that cancer arises in the duct or the lobule. That's where it was described like back in the 60s and 70s, but it's it's not mm-hmm. really true. Um, we don't know if there's a different cell of origin. It hasn't, we haven't gotten that far yet. But I, I think what it comes down to is, is a, a hormonal response. And I, what I, one of the things I was trying to allude to with this different relationship to, to estrogen and, and hormones is that epidemi- epidemiologically, uh, you know, back in the 80s, there was this increased use of hormone replacement therapy, which mm-hmm. was either estrogen or the combined uh, estrogen plus progestins. And uh, the risk of ductal cancer was pretty exclusively to the combined therapy, right? The E plus P. Lobular goes up more with E plus P than ductal, but estrogen alone is sufficient to drive the increased risk of lobular. And in fact, most of the increased risk of breast cancer overall with hormone replacement therapy was lobular. Um, so in the 90s, we saw lobular rates go up and then they've, they've kind of leveled off as hormone replacement fell out of mm-hmm. replacement therapy fell out of favor. So there's there's clearly some different context, and whether that's therapy a woman's taking, whether it's obesity, we don't really know. Um, but there's something that drives that. The, the hallmark of lobular, though, is is a, a loss of 16Q and, and e adherin, um, which is what we think drives that unique single file pattern. So there must be some, I mean, my again, my favorite stupid hypothesis is that there's some relationship between what estrogen does in the genome, maybe context, and there, there's some data that like you can have ER-driven permathripsis to maybe do something like lose 16Q, and that may be part of it. That's speculation at best. But I, I think it's hormones when it comes down to it in the end. <laughs> yeah, I mean, th- this is fascinating. And I, I think that's probably true for many other cancers as well, right? other cancer types you know, or organ sites. Um, so the other thing I was thinking is that uh, I think it's fascinating that um, uh, your MDC1 gene plays different roles, right? It is in, it's in the ductal carcinoma. It is has a tumor suppressor activity while in um, the lobular carcinoma, it acts as a non-cogene. And I guess I was wondering uh, why is it that it is upregulated in ILC but not in ductal carcinoma? Yeah, that's a fabulous question, and my R01 reviewers had the exact same question a few cycles ago. Um, there you go. Maybe yeah. we'll help you answer your, your critiques right here. 
Yeah, I hope so. So just to so fill in the blanks too for, for Joe a little bit, one thing we saw is that, you know, what Sonia alluded to is that MDC1 and DNA damage normally, it, it acts like a tumor suppressor so because then tumors want to lose it to essentially enhance genomic instability. They can gain more mutations and become an angrier tumor. So when we did protein staining in, in tumor samples, we found that other tumor types would actually lose MDC1 protein, about a quarter of them overall. Whereas we only saw like one out of 25 or so ILC, ER positive ILC that lost MDC1. So like less than 5%. They wanted to keep it because they need it for ER function. So that's you know, kind of our big tumor data that, that there's a different context that Sonia just alluded to. Um, I don't know why <laughs> it's different <laughs> in the two tumor types. Um, but what we think, one thing we did see in the paper is that the interaction between ER and MDC1 is, we don't see it in the ductal cells. Um, the the kind of what we're trying to chase now is is MDC1 is absurdly heavily post-translationally modified. Um, most papers only show one or two bands in the Western blot, but we can legitimately probably see six or seven that are like legitimately MDC1 um, that are different sizes, different flavors. We've there's one in particular that we found uh, that's a little bit smaller than the the main isotypes that uh, is only we only see in ILC cell lines, um, and that one it it it's not explaining everything we're seeing that's different because ER interacts with several of the different size species that we see. But this one in particular, this smaller size is present like only in the ILC. And we think it may be something to do with how ER maybe gets to the genome. Maybe it's like a shell or something. I, I can only speculate. Um, but otherwise, we're, 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 we have some ideas about um, different ways that MDC1 might be phosphorylated or sumolated to um, open up new epitopes for, for ER to interact. Um, MDC1 does surprisingly enough, have one, if not two, of the classic LXXLL motif, the, the small motif that co-regulators use to interact with ER. Uh, just for whatever reason, MDC1's LXXLL isn't featured in like any of the panels that you can use to study, like the screening peptides. It's just not there. People haven't studied it. So it plausibly should interact with ER. So we're not clear if it's something that, that allows it to interact with ER and ILC or something that blocks it in IDC. Maybe it's role in DNA repair or some other way it's engaged stops mm -hmm. it. Um, yeah, we're trying to tease that apart. Um, ILC does have other features at the tumor level, like from cancer genome atlas, that their DNA repair is a little dysregulated somehow. We don't know if it's broken or hyperactivated, so that may somehow change the context yeah. for IDC when it works. And yeah, that's also another chicken in the egg question that we don't know the answer to yet. Yeah, it's so fascinating. There's so much to be learned. And, um, and, and one thing that I, I find amazing with cancer cells is that they seem to be always a few steps ahead ahead of us, right? With our treatments and the way we try to 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 get rid of them. Uh, so I think it's, it's, but I think the work you're doing is fascinating. It's really needed for a subset of breast cancer patients. So I guess in that vein. So how do you? Uh, I guess that's my last question. How do you see um, using MDC1 as a target therapeutic target? Because, because of this dichotomy that it's a tumor suppressor, but it's also an oncogene. Right. So um, were you the reviewer on my paper? Because they asked a very similar question. <laughs> um, but no, it's, it's a really good point because you could say, well, you know, MDC1 has this unique function. Let's target it. And that's that, like, just the idea of inhibiting MDC1 broadly is probably not a good idea because it mm -hmm. is still a tumor that's suppressor right. everywhere yeah, else. Yeah. Um, so ideally, we could figure out what exactly the tumor, the, or the, um, the co-regulator function of MDC1 is. Um, it doesn't have any known enzymatic activity itself, um, but in, in DNA repair, it acts as a large scaffolding protein. So potentially we could try to target either protein-protein interactions. There are 
new small molecules in, in various phases of development that actually target that LXXLL to that, mm -hmm. that interaction motif. So you could plausibly target that. Um, we're also trying to figure out who is the epigenetic muscle of MDC1. Right. Um, and if we can figure out who that is, like what can the friend, can we target that? Um, epigenetic therapies obviously have been hit and miss, but I think it's going to be another matter of if we know that that protein is active in this subset of tumors, then it'll be more feasible to target it. Conversely, though, um, if in fact MDC1's DNA repair function is not working right in ILC cells, it does imply that they may be vulnerable or dependent upon some particular DNA repair. And that's something else we're, we're trying to chase. So it's not targeting the new function directly, but it's targeting what might be indicated as a result of that new function. Yeah. And we're hoping that something, you know, easy like PARP inhibitors might work, but we'll get there. <laughs> mm -hmm. The next gram. Exactly. <laughs> so I had a question for each of you, but before I get there, is there like a closing thought or takeaway that either one of you had to, to share about the papers we discussed? Or? No, I mean, I'll just, I'll, I'll kind of reinforce that. I think it's fascinating how uh, I could easily see kind of a, a bouncing connection from Sonia's work to my work because we're, I mean, the, the question you asked about how patients get lobular cancers, I would love to see that there is some predisposition that comes from epigenetic inheritance that maybe creates the context that we're trying to find in lobular cancer. I think it's entirely plausible whether it's a pure inheritance or, or it is a hormonal exposure thing. I think that's going to be critical um, to linking right, 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 right. how you go from predisposition to a specific subtype of cancer. And, and, and I was thinking the same thing. I, it, it, this has been one of the things that I've been trying because this is such a new field of research, particularly in oncology. This is something I've been trying to explain to people. We see not just the different subtypes of cancer could be explained perhaps by ancestral exposures, mm -hmm. but it could also be why some people respond to therapies and some don't. We see this, we see this a lot in health, the health disparities, right? In, cancer incidence, but also the phenotypes you get, depending uh, of, of your ethnic background, but also your social and cultural background. Um, so I think, yeah, I, I, maybe we should partner Matt, and try to, yeah, yeah, and come up with some ideas and some specific aims and put a grant together. I think it'd be fun. I will. I'll just and also one more closing. I'll applaud you for being so bold as to make sure that the fathers share in the blame for cancer predisposition. It's not obvious, and I'm sure you. you know, as as I'm a mother, so I want to share the blame. <laughs> it's not even about sharing the blame. It's it's really one of the reasons why I study the fathers because it's much technically more feasible to collect the the father germline that be in men or in mice. Right. It's much easier to collect the germline, so that's have to work but but it but it, it ended up being i guess an, i guess another important consequence of this is that we need to also think about maybe prenatal care for men right we do that for women and and we know that that can have an effect on the health of their children why not start doing it for men cheers cheers to that so i was gonna ask like for somebody who's not a scientist you each went to school for a bazillion years. You managed to start your own lab and launch this line of research. But I mean, along the way, you could have gone into this field or that field, or you could have gotten interested in this, or you could have pursued that idea. So why this? And either one can go first. What is it that drew you to your field specifically? Like what's so exciting about it? And why does it matter to a cancer patient or a caregiver? 
So I think I was always interested in this idea of inheritance of predisposition. And I think there have been so many studies looking at genetic predisposition. And while that is, it is important, it only explains in the case of the breast, breast cancer specifically, only, it only explains about 10% of cancers, right? Uh, yet there is an estimate, is estimated that about 30% of breast cancers have some sort of a familial component to them that they're the, the cancer predisposition running families, but not all of them can be explained by genetic predisposition. That is one of the reasons why I started studying this. Uh, I just think it's one of the things that I like about my line of research specifically is that it is at the crossroads of so many different disciplines. I was like I was telling Matt, uh, reproductive embryonic biology, developmental biology, but also Mom, in my case, mammogram biology and cancer biology. So I think this is, to me is really fascinating. We, we try, and I think this is to make things easier for the things you study. We try to compartmentalize, right, our fields and, oh, we study this or we study that. But biology itself, I think it's, it's everything. Everything is connected in some way. Uh, it may take a while for you to get there, but it, <laughs> everything is interconnected. So. Very true. I want to I take, I like taking this more holistic view of um, why we, why people develop cancer and, and perhaps take a more holistic view on how we treat the cancers as well. I think it may have gone in the complete opposite direction, oddly enough. Um, so I, I kind of, this maybe sounds weird, I fell in love with estrogen as, as far as a, a molecule as a concept because it works at like a thousandth to a millionth of the concentration that drugs that we take, for instance, use. I mean, we think about you know concentrations most that operate in the micromolar to even millimolar range, like glucocorticoids are in the, the the low millimolar range. But estrogen works at femtomolar to picomolar ranges. Like it really is a millionth to a trillionth of the concentration of everything else. So like it's just such an amazing molecule. Um, but you know, as I learned more about what estrogen does, I kind of just naturally went to breast cancer. But um, I started learning about Labrador cancer as a postdoc and um, my postdoc mentor basically had said, no, we have this, this new kind of idea. Can you run with it? And um, I almost just got offended with how little was known about lobular. Um, it's, it's the most common special subtype of breast cancer, but it, it's still technically on its own a top 10 cancer affecting women. But as I alluded to, we just don't know a whole lot about it because it had been lumped into everything else for so long. But then learning that, you know, as we got started playing with the models that we had and learning about tumor data, they just, they don't respond to estrogen like they're supposed and that it just it, to me that's so fundamentally irritating <laughs> we more about it that I find myself offended and and part of the reason I stayed in the field in my independent lab though is honestly the 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 passion of the patients and advocates they've been so energizing and excited to have research done on their tumor type that I I can't but I can't help but be obliged to keep going with it because it scratches my scientific itches to understand how this exquisitely potent molecule does what it does. Um, and then I get to you know, translate that to hopefully making patients' lives better in the long term. So that was great. Now I kind of understand why these two exquisitely potent scientists do what they do. <laughs> this has been really, really fun. Um, I just want to say thanks for all you do, for, for everything you're doing to you know push research forward, explain your research to people like me, and uh, for all you're doing to help patients. Really appreciate you. And Thanks, uh, with, so, so with that, I want to say, be safe, take care, and do something fun today. Cool. Well, go enjoy some sunshine.
Maybe tomorrow.